0: Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode, will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper, and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Jessica Rohr about her paper, Soft Skills, the case for compassionate approaches or how behavior analysis keeps finding its heart. Jessica is a BCBAD and licensed behavior analyst in the state of Connecticut. She is a program director at CCSN where she provides leadership and program development support to the consultative team at CCSN as well as educational programs. Jessica received her master's degree in applied behavior analysis through Northeastern University and her doctoral in ABA through Endicott College under Mary Jane Weiss. Jessica has previously worked for the New England Center for Children and as a behavioral consultant for the Ohio State University Medical Center's Nausinger Center. She has experience providing in home as well as school based behavior analytic services to children and young adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities, as well as conducting parent and staff trainings. Jessica has worked as an adjunct professor at the University of St. Joseph and Endicott College and as a professional member of various professional local and national behavior analytic organizations. Jessica has presented nationally and internationally on topics such as staff training, preference assessments, and increasing independence, and her work has been published in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, Behavior Analysis in Practice, and the Encyclopedia of Autism Spectrum Disorders, as well as the Handbook of Autism and Pervasive Developmental Disorders. I had a great conversation. With Jessica, I think this topic's incredibly interesting. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jessica Rohr. Hello, Jessica, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks so much.
0: We're excited to have you on the show today to talk about your paper, Soft Skills, The Case for Compassionate Approaches, or How Behavior Analysis Keeps Finding Its Heart. Before we jump into the paper, we always love learning a little bit about our guests. So do you mind sharing a little bit about your background, maybe your current role and why you're interested in this research?
1: Sure. yes, I will um, try to keep my answer relatively brief. It's something um, the topic is something I get very excited about, but we'll have the opportunity to talk more. Um, so I I um, my background is in behavior analysis. I actually started uh, working at the new England center for children. Um, and that's where I got my master's through Northeastern there. Um, and then, you know, I didn't, I didn't do much of, didn't do much work related to, you know, behavior analysis and, and compassionate approaches there. It was, it was definitely more, um, technical and kind of diving into the technical aspects of, of ABA. Um, and so that's where I got my start. And then, um, fast forward a long time, maybe like 15 years or so, um, I decided to go and pursue my doctorate um, through Endicott. And so while I was at Endicott, I had the opportunity to work um, under Dr. Mary Jane Weiss, uh, my advisor and and mentor extraordinaire. And um, there I sort of got into this research interest, which I I didn't even realize was a research interest until I was sort of in it. So it kind of came out of, um, you know, a a lot of a compilation of my studies and, you know, reading and discussion with colleagues and friends and things of that nature. And um, so that's how I kind of came into um, the being interested in the area of collaboration and compassionate approaches. My current role Professionally is a program director at CCSN, and that's the Center for Children with Special Needs, and I oversee program consultants there who do primarily work in public schools, so um, consultation with school districts and, um, you know, alongside that families uh, in public school districts, and so, you know, through that work, I think recognized even more of a need for sort of bridging behavior analysis with like the regular world, right? Other, you know, people who um, are accessing special education and who have, you know, kids with autism, but of course not just autism, right? Other special needs or, um, you know, or accessing any education at all, right? There's such a a need to bridge that those two worlds. And so that's sort of where the the idea of, um, you know, diving a little bit deeper into collaboration with families and these approaches came from.
0: So was it your clinical experience of working with families and, and clients that made you want to explore further how to sort of maximize that collaborative approach and how to emphasize compassion within services? Is, was it born in your clinical work, all of this?
1: I think it primarily was right. That's where that's where my history and experience was um, before even starting my doctorate. That was, you know, what I had had the most experience doing. And I think it was probably a combination of having fantastic mentors and colleagues at CCSN, right, and seeing how this work can be done very well. Um, and not just there, you know, at other professional moments in my career, I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to have really um, strong mentors and colleagues and peers and people whose work I really admire and, you know, being able to see them do this work, right, and sort of um, present the field of behavior analysis the way that it should be and the way that it can be um, to families and the general public and educators and kind of everyone. Um, And so I, I saw that it could be done and that it was being done. And then I think that coupled with sort of the other side of that, which is, you know, hearing a lot um, from kind of in general society, <laughs> hearing a lot of concerns about ABA, right, and behavioral analy- analytic approaches and uh, misconceptions about what behavior analysis is, um, you know, things like rigidities and creating robotic responses and things like that. And, you know, I think that juxtaposition of, of me having seen in my clinical work how, um, successful behavior analysis really can be, um, you know, with that, with the opposite view um, was problematic for me and led me to think about um, and consider ways that we could be doing this better and then how to figure out how to kind of imbue that into the field and start teaching clinicians, you know, how to do that. Because as I mentioned, I had had and have Um, fantastic mentors, but I think that there's a level of teaching and training of these skills um, that needs to be more explicit.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, you hit the nail on the head with with so many components there. I I think it's it's a very common theme to, to talk around the need for explicit training, experience, and mentorship. In some of these sort of quote-unquote softer skill areas, or are the ability to to better connect with families and clients specifically, and to and to learn how to really maximize and amplify the voices of the people we're working with to ensure that we're providing care that is consistent with their values and right. and their preferences, and, and and ensuring their autonomy and everything like that. And so this article is very much so in that theme and in that spirit. And at the beginning of this paper, you talk about the importance of collaboration with caregivers and families and providing services. And we've sort of talked around this idea already, but can we talk specifically about why collaboration is, is so critical in successful services?
1: Yeah, um, great question. And I think when I started looking into it, um, it just seems like a good idea, right? Like it makes sense to say, like, yes, we should be collaborating with families and finding out about their priorities, and you know, being um, effective communicators and uh, you know, working well with others. Um, but I I didn't realize the extent to which this had been explored in other fields already, um, right? So fields like healthcare and social work. Um, and other other related fields um, to behavior analysis where we can and and should take many cues, right? And and integrate some of their um, existing work and findings into our own. Um, But essentially in in looking into that and kind of diving into the literature and the research that exists in the area of um, healthcare, social work, um, speech and language pathology, has some education, um, psychology, anyway, all of these allied and related fields, um, have essentially already started to find outcomes related to, you know, more therapeutic relationships, um, find that those outcomes are, are improved when there are better therapeutic relationships, right? So, um, you know, there are a number of ways that it's referred to in all of this different literature, right? There's family centered care and there's therapeutic approaches and there's relationship building and um, all of these kind of different related terms. And which is why it's sometimes hard to find, right, in the literature. It's not called one thing, um, but essentially finding that outcomes are better, right? Outcomes are improved for the client and the family. They like things better, they have better adherence. Um, and in the field of healthcare, they actually have better you know, physical outcomes, right? Adherence to diabetes management is one that um, is investigated pretty significantly by um, Hojat et al. I actually don't know how to pronounce that, um, H-O-J-A-T. There are a number of articles um, by him and his, his colleagues that really dive into you know, empathy and the impact of empathy uh, as a physician on the outcomes of uh, patients. And essentially they found broadly overall that when physicians are experienced as being more empathic and having more um, empathic responding, uh, their patients do better, right? They're more likely to adhere to protocols um, for for diabetes management, for example. Um, And so you see actual measurable health improvements. Um, And so it makes sense that we would carry that forward into behavior analysis and say, listen, we know we need to look into, you know, parental adherence or non-adherence as it may be to, to treatment and how, how can we improve that in a way that feels good for families, right. And feels like they're involved in their child's care and treatment and makes them sort of want to collaborate with us, right. And be on, walk with us on, on their treatment journey, um, in a way that's different from us sort of coming across as the expert saying, here's what you have to do.
0: I love that viewpoint for a lot of reasons. I mean, even thinking about ourselves as consumers of healthcare providers or whatever we may experience in our lives, how do we like it when we go into a doctor's office and they don't seem to care about our opinion and they say, just do this thing. And we go, well, I don't know if I can just, you need to do it. Like right. this is the best medical treatment for you.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Just do it. Right. And it's that bedside manner. Yeah. Right? And I think um, Dr. Kazemi had a, had a really funny video clip in one of her presentations that I saw. I cannot remember the name of it now, but it was something about bedside manner um, and just, you know, that how we respond to people, you know, depending on the way that they talk to us and the way that the way that they present information or suggestions to us. So yeah, it, again, it seems to make sense, right? But diving into the research, it was kind of like, oh, there, there's existing stuff on this. Um, people have already found this, so we can incorporate
0: it. And I love that too. And this actually strikes or hits a theme that has sort of been unintentionally repeated in this season of Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast, which is acknowledging that other fields mm-hmm have useful information for behavior analysts. Sometimes we need to reinterpret what they've done. And sometimes we need to modify it. But we're not alone on this planet. There's a lot of good information out there that can help contribute to more successful client outcomes. And I think this area of collaboration and compassion is certainly one of the areas where this is this is not a new idea. I mean, I've just anecdotally in my life, my entire lifetime i have heard about the idea of bedside manner from, Mm -hmm. from medical providers. Right. And so, and, and I'm not sure what the sort of status of that research is when that's been taken seriously, but I've read about it in books for, for many, many, many years um, within the medical community. And so there's a lot of good stuff out there and I think you hit on uh, many of the important pieces. Now, Segueing a little bit and getting, I suppose, more to the point of this paper, you lay out in the paper that compassion is is a critical piece in improving collaborative relations. How does compassion relate to collaboration and why is that so important?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I don't, I think when we talk about collaboration, we don't really have a good working definition of that either. Right. And, you know, we're all sort of we know broadly what we mean by it. Right. (laughs) We mean kind of like having a shared goal and working towards that. And I think there are probably ways to do that, Um, you know, maybe in the in the absence of compassion. But it's it's likely to be more effective. Um, You know, if we if we come at it in a way that we know it tends to be better received. And that is, again, relying back on those other fields. Right. Other people have already found that when you engage in certain responses, they're better received. They tend to be better received by your audience, right? And that, of course, depends on a lot of things, right? Including things like, you know, culture and um, other, you know, reinforcement and learning histories. Um, But if they're finding that, you know, empathic responding, you know, things that, and we'll get into the details later, I'm sure, but things like nodding and, you know, body orientation and other types of body languages is is better received, then it essentially improves collaboration overall. Um, And so I don't know that they're inextricable. I guess that there are potentially types of collaboration that don't involve those responses, but it seems that kind of um, putting them all together would be the most
0: effective way to um, to move forward. I think that makes sense. I think perhaps one of the goals of a good collaboration is that it's maybe less transactional less like rigid and in like sterile perhaps mm-hmm. and, and i can yeah. imagine that embedding compassion or having compassion at the at the forefront of what you're doing may help create sort of warmer um, exchanges and, and dialogue and open those things up for, for right. more agree
1: Yeah. It should feel organic and natural and, you know, like a conversation. And I think that there's also an element of humility, you know, and I know that we haven't talked about, we haven't talked about that yet as it, as it relates to, um, you know, compassion as we've been discussing it. But I think that, you know, going back to your, to your thoughts on collaboration with other disciplines, relying on those other fields, Uh, there's an element of humility in that to say, we recognize that, you know, other people have important things to say. And I think that for the field of behavior analysis as a whole, that can really go a long way in bridging our relationship with other disciplines, which we know is really critical when we are treating clients and families as a team, because we don't work alone, typically.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Now, being that we're behavior analysts, we'd love a good definition. So (laughs) to put you on the spot here, I suppose, could you give the audience a a definition of what we mean when we use the term compassion?
1: Yes, but I'm going to borrow it um, (laughs) from, from Dr. Taylor and colleagues Um, I know that, you know, she wrote about empathy as sort of being related to perspective taking. Um, And I know that, you know, there's discussion about um, empathy and compassion from the standpoint of, you know, deictic frames and relational frame theory. And I'm certainly not going to get into that uh, because I'm not an expert in it. But I, I love her definition that talks about essentially compassion taking empathy a step further right, and converting some of that perspective taking that we get in empathy and into an act that is, she describes, aimed at the alleviation of suffering. So it's essentially that responding, right, you have to have the the perspective taking that you have in empathy, being able to sort of put yourself in someone else's shoes, which behavior analytically is where we get into the RFT, right, but I'm not going to go there, um, And and translating that into a response or an act that is intended to alleviate suffering.
0: Thank you. And I believe that that definition was originally provided in the uh, Bridget Taylor et al. 2018 paper, which we'll go ahead and link to in the show notes, in addition to this article that we're currently talking about. But it's a great uh, paper, clearly uh, one of the, the important papers referenced in, in, in Jessica's paper, and, and we'll provide the link to that. So we've established that compassion, that that collaborative relationships are important, that compassion can help contribute to collaborative relations. Mm -hmm. And in your paper, you also listed a a number of important outcomes or benefits of compassionate care, even beyond effective collaboration. Would you mind highlighting a, a few of the important outcomes of compassionate care?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think as, as I mentioned before, it really positions us better to, um, I sort of hate talking about increased adherence on its own, right? Because it sort of makes it sound like we're coming at it from the perspective of like, we have to get this buy-in to make you do what we want you to do. Right. And, and I think that there is an important distinction there, um, you know, we want to get client buy-in, but presumably we also want to be creating these relationships as a sort of foundation for important, you know, scientific treatments that we are then bringing forward to these families, right? So we we shouldn't. I think it's important to think about like, yes, we may improve adherence, and and we do, as we know from the other disciplines, right? Like healthcare and um, counseling and there's a article with um, in the field of cognitive behavioral therapy that um, talks about improved outcomes with regard to uh, therapeutic relationships. So we're seeing this across the board, but I think that if we talk about it as only being related to how we can get increased buy-in, um, we come off as you know as the rigid clinicians that we don't want to be. Right, I think if we think about it more in terms of how we can partner with families to really incorporate their priorities and their values and and the, you know, the client's values, that's when we get to a point where we are having, you know, actual improved care, right, and actual improved outcomes. The outcomes reaching, reaching much further than, um, you know, treatment fidelity is better. Right? Or they're they're doing what we want them to do more of the time. I think that that's a poor measure on its own. I think it's a component, right? Because we know that treatment fidelity um, in terms of interventions can be really impactful uh, for things like, you know, decreasing challenging behavior and, and increasing replacement skills and things like that. But I think if we think about it on its own as improving adherence, that's that's really not enough. But if we think about it in terms of um, improving those foundations of care between the clinician and the field at large and those families, then we're that, that's where the, the true outcomes are improved.
0: That's a, again, a great distinction on the, the treatment adherence. I think that one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, why would collaborating and interacting with the family in a compassionate way lead to better adherence? Is it because Mm -hmm. we have a treatment established, right? We already know what we want. And we talk to the family and and they say, yeah, we don't know about that. And we go, "Mm -hmm, yeah, I understand your concerns, but do it anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. And look, I was being collaborative. Uh, Mm -hmm. No, I Mm -hmm. think part of the reason we see adherence when you, when you bring in, caregivers and, and the clients into the collaborative sort of brainstorming p- point of the treatment planning is that we're a set we're creating these treatments that are doable and feasible and of interest to the clients so they're much more likely to to be bought into it it's not like hey you've got i'm going to give you two contrived choices you're going to do a dra mm-hmm. or you're going to do a route. I don't necessarily think of that as being collaborative, right? I like talking about, okay, here's what we saw in the assessment. Here's what I'm thinking. We may need to begin to try to think about addressing what are your thoughts and and having parents involved at and and the clients involved at every step of the treatment. I have in, in my role, I do a lot of consultation Mm -hmm. um, across sort of uh, treatment settings. And I've had a number of, uh people who I've consulted with reach out to me and go, you know, we're just frustrated with this with this client situation right now. We spent you know months doing these assessments and developing this treatment in the center. And then when we went to transition into the home, the parents go, yeah, we're not running that plan. Mm-hmm. And I go, well, did you talk to the parents when you were setting up this plan that you think is perfect in the in the center? Were you soliciting the parent feedback about what you were going to be doing for the next three months or four months or whatever it was to get their input and go, hey, if we're, here's what we're planning to do in the center. And we're going to try to get it legs so that you can do it in the home. Mm-hmm. Did you have that conversation? Well, well, no. We were just, well, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you just wasted that client's three months. You should have had the client's family and the client themselves involved with the decision making involved with every step of the process. That way you're not, no one is surprised when it's time for them to transition back home or to the school or whatever. And, and you're throwing a treatment plan at them that they know nothing about, they have provided no input on and yeah, maybe right. they don't want to do it for whatever reason.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the, and the client's input, right? The family's input, the client's input, everybody needs to be developing this plan Um, really have a a bigger hand in developing the plan than we do, right? We should be guiding plans, but we should be doing things that are consistent with, you know, what the client can um, advocate for, right, to the extent that they're able to. Um, I think, you know, I know Hanley and colleagues do a lot on, you know, assent and, um, you know, incorporating client preference. And and I think that that's absolutely critical beyond the scope of of my work um, here. But I think that, as it pertains to including the family's priorities as well, right? That's also hugely important. And it may look different, you know, in the clinic, in the home setting, in the school setting. Um, and that that may be okay, right? There, there may be tweaks to the plan that can be made um, when it's being implemented in different settings. But I agree with you. I think getting that input right off the bat and, you know, having an understanding of, you know, what are your priorities? What do you want? Um, And sometimes we just don't do that. Right. We presume to know or or we do an assessment that says what our priorities should be. Right. And we take the take our priorities from assessment results rather than combining those results with, you know, the current living situation. Right. Who's caring for your child? Who lives in your home? Who's going to be able to be there to do it? Um, What do we know about about your values and priorities that that will really make this make or break this intervention?
0: In your paper, you outline that this isn't necessarily like a new idea in in (laughs) behavior analysis that in fact, behavior analysts, there are already sort of models for compassionate care within behavior analysis. Can you talk a little bit about those?
1: Yeah, I think it was interesting for me to find that. So I think um, first, I will you know, give another shout out to the Taylor um, paper from 2018 because that really is what sort of for me drove, drove home sort of what I was thinking, right? I was ahead of this idea in my head and I was kind of trying to figure out how to articulate it. And then um, this paper and, and hearing having the opportunity to hear Bridget Taylor speak, you know, I was sort of like, yes, that, that's what I'm trying to say, right? And so how do we take that um, and really start integrating it into the field? In a meaningful way, the the survey that was done in that paper that talks about you know behavior analysts and what we're currently doing as a field was horrifying, you know, to me to read to to see you know this is what we're this is what we're not doing and this is how parents and families are experiencing us as clinicians and the field of behavior analysis in general. Um, I also just wanted to add that um, the idea of behavioral artistry that is described by Fox um, and then the idea of sort of behavior analysis as being progressive as described by Leaf and colleagues was something that was also very impactful for me when thinking about um, what kind of compassionate approaches and um, fluidity in engaging with families and with clients, sort of can look like. Um, because the, you know, behavioral artistry is essentially referring to uh, sort of the ability to engage fluently and in different and creative ways, sort of given the context, um, rather than following a really rote, um, rigid protocol as we sometimes like to outline in behavior analysis, right? Because we like our protocols and we like things well-defined and that's that's great. And I think that that's an important component, but we also need to understand sort of the spirit of the intervention um, and where we're going with these things and be able to uh, vary our responding accordingly. And I think that that's what um, Fox and, and Callahan and colleagues um, are getting at with their discussion of behavioral artistry and then Leaf and colleagues in their discussion of um, behavior analysis being progressive and needing to have some level of fluidity and being able to change and respond um, to the the clients and the families that we're working with.
0: Thanks for for outlining those within the paper you also talk about some of the work that has been conducted looking at the use of accessible language and how all of Mm -hmm. that relates do you mind recounting some of that. Yes,
1: um, the use of jargon in behavior analysis is a really interesting topic for me. Um, I could talk about it all day, um, but I will also say that I um, am not an expert on that either, but I'll give a shout out to my colleague, Kimberly Marshall, who's also on this paper um, and has spent more time extensively researching um, jargon and the use of jargon, uh, particularly with, with families. Um, and so I think that we there's still more to be known in our field about what the actual measurable impact of the use of jargon is in terms of um, integrating it in our work with families. So I don't think that we completely know the answer. Um, I think that families will sometimes tell you that they don't mind jargon um, or that they're familiar with it, right? They've been doing ABA for a long time. So maybe you know they're more familiar with some of the terms, but we also know that generally, um, you know, as as Critchfield outlined in 2017, the general public is not particularly uh, open to or responsive to some of the very technical terms that we use in behavior analysis, um, right? And we can see why, right? Some terms like extinction and discrimination um, can be quite aversive. And so I think that there's likely more work that needs to be done in terms of finding out exactly what the impact is of using, you know, behavior analytic jargon in our, in our interactions with families. But what we, what we kind of know is that probably generally people don't like it as much as they like when you speak to them in accessible ways. Um, It doesn't mean that you have to talk down to them, right? You can simply define terms. Um, And I think we see that as we talked about before with the regard to the bedside manner, right? We see that with effective physicians. Um, it doesn't mean that we necessarily want physicians to ever avoid you know, using their technical terms that they learned in medical school. Um, that's fine to use, right? It allows us to see that they kind of know what they're talking about and they can break those terms down in a very um, accessible and fluent way so that we also know that they can relate to us as human beings.
0: That makes sense. I mean, as any sort of clinician, I'm sure you have to be able to walk in both worlds, right? You gotta, You have to use the technical terms. You have to understand what they are. You have to be able to communicate them to one another, but you also need to be able to translate them and identify the settings in which you should be using certain language, Certainly. right? Like, like you said, if I had a work with a family and, and the mom had been like, cultivating services for her, for her child for the past 10 years. And mm-hmm. she's read, you know, every book she can get her hands on related to behavior analysis. And like, she wants the geeky stuff. Well, cool. Right. You know, we can talk, we can use the geeky language. Right. right. Uh, but it's, it's being able to identify that and, 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 sort of have a little bit of audience control if you want to use the
1: right.
0: right. analytic term. Right. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all very helpful, and, and I think those are sort of cool examples of sort of recent endeavors looking into providing um, compassionate care. You know, I personally also think there's some pretty good historical antecedents for the concept of compassionate care within behavior analysis. I mean, even within the Bear Wolf-Risley 1968 mm-hmm. paper talking about the need for uh, socially significant behavior change. Well, w- why did they specify socially significant? Like, what does that mean? That means that it, mm-hmm. it's meaningful to the families, right? Or to the clients. And so, and then, you know, shortly after that, the Montrose Wolf paper, looking at social validity and how to measure it and, and the importance of considering it. So, you know, I think that one of the things that i i see in conversations that i get worried about related to compassion and care is people implying that this is like a new thing for behavior analysis or that it's i guess my concern is that people don't realize it's at the core of behavior analysis like to me not doing these things we talk about is almost fundamentally in violation of what it means to be an applied behavior <laughs> analyst. Yes. Right. And yes. so it's not like, Hey, you are an applied behavior analyst and now we're asking you to do something different. It's like, no, 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 no. As an applied emphasis on the applied piece, like these are all expectations that any and all the be- applied behavior analysts really have. And, and I think historically have had.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. 100%. I completely agree with you. And I think, right. It sounds sort of um, soft and, and we don't know how to talk about it. And, you know, are we social workers now? Like what is going on? Right. But I, I am so glad that you brought it back to, you know, bear Wolf and Risley and, you know, the 1968 paper. And, you know, it, I, I agree that it's, it's fundamental what, to what we do, right. It's the applied aspect, right. They, they talked about that applied research is, is, needs to be related to looking at behaviors, which are socially important, right? Rather than convenient for study. That's that's what they um, outlined in that paper and really represented, I think a shift in the field from the focus on kind of behavior reduction, right? And we talked about modification and things like that to the applied analysis of behavior. And I think that that applied emphasis um, is, is what we need to do, right? It, it is the foundation. And so we can't kind of take that part out. Um, and I'm so glad that you also, you know, brought us back to Wolf and the 1978 paper, because obviously the title of this paper was um, intended to pay homage to, you know, that that paper, social validity, the case for subjective measurement or how applied behavior analysis is finding its heart. And, you um, I think that it that's what it, it you're right that's what it all comes back to right is are the things that we are doing socially valid are they applied or are they just we can change behavior because we have the technology and the, the the you know methods to do that because if that's the case that's not applied right and that's not what behavior analysis is about so i agree with you i think it it is what we're talking about it is critical and important and it's not new
0: Despite it being sort of at the core of what it means to be an applied behavior analyst, we, as you sort of talked about, don't necessarily always have the language, the skills, or the resources to really emphasize this component of of what it means to be a behavior analyst. And sort of in the last section of your paper, you provide a tool and some resources to help improve this compassionate collaborative approach. Can you Mm -hmm. talk about the tool that you provide in the paper and and explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the tool as, you know, discussed in the paper is, was really developed um, based on a number of existing resources, right? And so thinking about if this research already exists in other fields, right? Healthcare has talked about it, social work has talked about it, psychology has talked about it. If we if we already know that other people have talked about what these approaches look like, um, and behavior analysis too, I don't wanna leave out behavior analysis, there's a lot that's been done um, there too, but kind of putting it all together and saying, um, these are the things that that stand out as observable and measurable responses that we can be engaging in, so that we can say we are on sort of the right track to being compassionate and collaborative. That's where that's where the tool came from, right? So there's a number of resources that were involved in um, the development of the tool. Um, I won't list them all now, but of course they're in the paper. But um, it's kind of a conglomeration of like something from the medical field, and something over here is from, you know, speech and language, and this thing over here is from behavior analysis, right? The jargon component, there's jargon components. Um, but a lot is from the a lot is from the medical field, I will say. So a lot that we found was um, that we're talking specifically about those uh, behaviors like orienting to the speaker and uh, open body posture um active and attentive listening trying to think exactly which ones are related um were in those where it was in the research related to um physicians improving their bedside manner really right their empathic behaviors so that was really interesting um, to learn about but yes so the idea of the tool was to then kind of put them all together Um, we broke them down into two sections, right? One is the collaborative approaches. So that was intended to talk more about the content, right? What are you asking about? What types of things are you talking about with the families? Are you soliciting preferences and priorities? Are you asking questions related to their values um, for their child? And then the language and communication uh, section of the tool is more related to the how, right? How that's being communicated. So what type of language are you using? What sort of body language um, is happening while you're communicating, vocal approaches, it, avoiding jargon, things like that. Um, and so, you know, we thought it it was intended to be an initial step um, in the direction of breaking these things down for folks so that they were able to reference them and, and sort of use them as a checklist in a variety of different ways, right? In the paper, we go into um, you could use it as a self-evaluation tool. Check yourself. Am I doing these things? Did I do this when I just met with this family? Maybe you review it before you go in. Um, it was intended um, in that way to be a potentially uh, be potentially used as a clinical tool. Um, in other ways, it could be uh, used in research, right? To see if we can improve these skills and um, in, in training. Um, that's something that I then. Sort of took that next step um, and tried to, you know, include some uh, some things from the the tool as well as some other resources, um, and that is what my dissertation research focused on. So, um, so that's kind of one direction that it could be taken. But I see because I'm in the clinical world, you know, every day in schools and 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 clinic settings, I see it as a valuable and accessible tool for clinicians to use
0: immediately. So you did a really nice job of laying out what this this tool looks like for the listeners. It's it's beautifully laid out in a in a table in the article. So I recommend downloading the paper if not to read, certainly to have this really useful tool. And we won't go over every single detail of it. I think Jessica did a really nice job of, of laying it out as best we can in podcast form. But I do want to circle back to and, and talk about sort of the scoring breakdown mm-hmm. of the tool. Could you talk about how that works and, and why that's useful?
1: Yeah, I think that that piece um, we sort of conceptualized as being used um, as as maybe being more useful when giving feedback than something else might be right we didn't want to land on sort of a binary of like you either did it or you didn't do it because these are complex skills right and there may be moments where in the context of um interacting with a family you you know a clinician engages in some of these skills but you know not quite to the extent that they could be engaged in right or you sometimes ask about their priorities but not their priorities with regard to you know i don't know feeding or Academic progress, or whatever it might be. Um, and so I think that there's a little bit of, um, you know, a spectrum there with regard to how clinicians could be um, using these skills. But I also think that it is helpful when giving feedback, right? So if it's being used as like a clinical tool or a tool for a supervisor to maybe do, conduct an observation and give feedback to a supervisee or, um, you know, a, a clinician who's learning these skills or learning how to engage with families, it might be uh, better approached in the way that you are, you know, sometimes demonstrating these, right? Or maybe you miss some opportunities and let's go back and talk about what those were, right? Which is essentially a score of two on the rubric, right? Not, not consistently demonstrated or it's there may be some missed opportunities. I think conceptualizing them as missed opportunities or um, places to learn from, is better than like either you did this or you didn't do it. Um, you know, of course, specific examples when giving feedback are always best. Um, but I think that this gives us also uh, room for improvement, right? So you could be a one this time and maybe next time you're a two. And so you're getting better and you you know, that maybe you're not there yet, but um, but you're on the right track. So I think that's what, for me, that's sort of how I was thinking about the scoring rubric.
0: Thank you. Yeah, and I think that this this table, this tool is really well laid out. As you had mentioned, this is something that clinician supervisors can pick up immediately, right, and, and utilize. And I'm sure there's a lot of creative ways to utilize this and improve practices, whether you're just kind of using it as a self checklist for yourself, or you're working with people training and providing feedback. I think there's a lot of good utility now not to give too much away from, you know, one of the studies you talked about doing yourself, that's uh, somewhere in the process of hopefully of being shared with us. Mm -hmm. Um, So everyone keep your eyes out for that paper, but could you talk (laughs) about um, what research, including the work you've already done, can and should be done with this tool to to help progress things along in this area?
1: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, it's, it's new, right? It's relatively new. And so I think that there are a lot of opportunities for its use. And I I would love to see research that includes um, either, you know, pulling targets from this tool or using, you know, the tool itself. Um, I can see it being used, you know, with um, giving feedback to, I really see it very easily being used to giving feedback to supervisees. Right, and I sort of wish that I had had that opportunity um, as I was learning to be a behavior analyst. Um, and I think it can be daunting, right? I don't know if I'm doing this right, or am I asking the right questions to the parents, or you know, am I saying it the right way? I don't know. I think that it can be intimidating, but I also know that no one ever laid out for me this is how you should be doing it, right? And these are things that you might want to think about incorporating into your practice. And so I think that if you just start thinking about doing some of these things, um, you know, it, it's a start, right? And we may need more explicit training on them. Um, and I think, that, and as you mentioned, that's what I um, attempted to uh, incorporate into um, my more recent research is sort of training on some of these skills and, and seeing whether we could um, build fluency. Um, and that was particularly in the context of, of an interview um, with a caregiver. But I definitely think that particularly new clinicians don't necessarily know where to start. Um, and and I think that the guidance that they receive and the supervision that they receive really varies pretty wildly in terms of um, feedback that they get on things like soft skills and communicating their interventions to stakeholders.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I love that this, as you said, sort of addresses the need of, you know, when you were being trained, and when I was being trained, I there was no like candy, like you should do this, this and this, mm-hmm. right, right. If you had good mentorship, right, that was included, I'm sure within your, your training process, I was very lucky with the the people that I worked with, uh, through my, my training process. But there was never like a definitive, you know, here's a checklist. Here's a thing that you should be doing. Um, And so this is a really cool resource and I'm excited that you were able to share this with the, the the behavior analytic community and that we are able to talk about it on the show. Is there anything about else about this paper that uh, you'd like to share with the audience? Anything we haven't covered? I think going
1: back to the tool, as you just mentioned, Um, having it as a resource, one of the things that we try to really do within the tool is give very clear and well-defined responses, right? Because that's also what behavior analysts want. And it's true. I want, you know, we want that too. If somebody tells me, you know, be compassionate, be empathic, ask questions. I'm like, okay, but you know, I hope that, that I get some clearer examples of what that looks like. Um, And so I think that, as much as we could, in the context of, of the tool, we tried to kind of give examples of what that might sound like, or what that might look like, as well as the observable responses, right, of things like leaning forward, or nodding, um, active and attentive listening, right, but giving examples of what that looks like, as opposed to just saying, kind of be an active listener. So I think we don't always know that.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, I love that we kind of really, you kind of did a really nice job of sort of creating the specific isolated behaviors that all sort of add up to to mm-hmm. hopefully appearing more compassionate. now i imagine that um all of these steps really also need to be backed up with like f- follow-through on things right like we're not just interviewing caregivers and, and and doing all these great forms of you know open and and, and open communication but we also need to Incorporate their actual feedback that they provided into our intervention plans, our assessment plans, etc.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that that I I thought about this a lot when when I was trying to teach these skills um, as part of the research that you know that was that followed this paper. Um, and that was one thing that I kept kind of going back to was that differentiation between um, component skills and then sort of a broader repertoire of coming across as compassionate, right? Because we don't, we're not just trying to, um, create clinicians that, you know, make empathy statements and nod when they're talking, right. But they're kind of component skills that, um, that build up to, you know, broader relationship skills and, um, kind of end up coming across, uh, as compassionate rather than sort of learning a rote or manualized skill set.
0: Yeah, I I think that's awesome. I I think this tool is really great. And I think it's really exciting for people interested in, in this concept of compassion or the topic of compassion more broadly. We've provided and you've provided a lot of good resources throughout, you know, citations to the Bridget Taylor paper and the Mm -hmm. Vera Wolf and Risley and the Montrose Wolf paper. Is there any other resources or, or avenues that you would like to recommend to the listeners who want to learn more about this topic?
1: Um, Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, the topic of motivational interviewing is one that has sort of popped up here and there in my research. Um that's a little bit, it's a little bit different, right? Motivational interviewing has some some nuances that, that are different than sort of responding compassionately. they're they're different things, but um, I think a lot of the same responses apply. Um, Canon and Gould p- published a paper recently on um, training some of these relationship building skills um, in applied behavior analysis practitioners. Um, so I think that that was, Again, you know, it, it's a it's a great start toward where we need to go. We need to be saying these are the things that we know are important. How do they look? Um, how can we teach them? And how do they then contribute to the broader, you know, overall skill set and the face of behavior analysis that we really want to be presenting to the rest of the world.
0: Absolutely. And, and thank you for sharing those resources. And thank you for coming on the show today to talk about this. It's been great. It's been a pleasure. So, so thank you.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I always love to talk about this.
0: <laughs> Before you go too far, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent BAT papers that we should review. Finally I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the Journal of Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Farron. And my production assistants for this episode, Jacob Oliveira and Beyonce Ferrucci. And as always, thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast.